Good evening, everyone. Good evening, and I uh, just wanted to ask you to take your seats as quickly as possible. We're going to begin in a couple of minutes. I'm John Donvan. I'm the host of the Intelligence Square debates and the moderator for the debates as well. Thank you all for uh, coming out for this one. And um, I know a lot of you have been to these debates in the past, so what I'm about to say is for newcomers, and that's to explain the role of the audience. Uh, a few things you need to know is that we're taping this for broadcast both on Bloomberg Television and on NPR stations across the nation. And to that end, number one, I wanted to ask you all to turn off your cell phones completely to zero power because uh, the signals will interfere with the microphones. Number two, um, as audience members, you're actually involved in two critical ways. The most important is um, as the judges for the debate. At your seats on the right-hand side, you'll find a keypad, and early in the evening, almost at the very beginning, I will ask you to pick up the keypad and use it to vote on where you stand on our motion, which is clean energy can drive America's economic recovery. If you agree with the motion, you signal that by pressing number one, and if you disagree, you press number two, and if you're undecided, you push number three. You can ignore the other keys, and if you make a mistake, uh, just correct it, and the system will lock in your last vote. And we'll register that, and then at the end of the debate, we're going to ask you to vote again after having heard the arguments. And we ask you to come to these with a very open mind, to listen to the quality of the arguments, not necessarily to vote your own convictions, but listen to the quality of the arguments that are made, because that's what we're really asking you to judge. Who did a better job of making the case? The other way in which you're involved as members of the audience is at about the halfway mark, I'd like to come to you for questions that you can put to the debaters to help move the debate along. A question that will really focus on our motion, on the language of that motion, and um, that actually is a question. I, I, I'll discourage you from standing up and debating with the debaters and from making long statements. If you feel that you need to write down your question, that's probably a sign that it's not such a great question. Something that you really feel comfortable with that comes out of you spontaneously and that actually has a question mark at the end. Um, and we're going to also be, uh, for the first time, um, these debates are sponsored uh, this season for us by the Clean Skies Foundation out of Washington, D.C., uh, whose CEO, Greg Staple, is with us in the front row. I just want to ask you to rise and give you a round of applause for, for making this possible. And also, as, um, as, and, and, and in two locations, this debate is actually going to be viewed as well by viewing parties in Washington, D.C., about 50 people, and in San Francisco, about 50 people are watching. They will also vote at the end. Their vote won't count towards the overall total, but we'll be reporting it as a matter of interest. And also, one of our previous debaters uh, is with us in the audience, Charles Ferguson. I don't know if you can stand up and... I, I can't see you. If you person next to Charles can clap. <laughs> Charles Ferguson uh, is one of our previous debaters, but more importantly, if you were watching the Oscar Awards a week ago, uh, the documentary category, Inside Job, that's his movie, and congratulations <laughs> to him. I can't see you, Charles, but congratulations. And now I'd like to welcome our debaters to the stage.
So because this is a, a broadcast, I will be doing occasionally uh, little bits of uh, television and radio talk, like telling you endlessly where we are and what my name is. And so, so just so you know, I haven't lost my mind. I'm doing that for, for breaks in the broadcast. And when we come back from those breaks, it will be really helpful if you can uh, help us with a round of applause to come back so that everyone in Radio Land knows just how much you're enjoying yourselves. <laughs> so again, I want to thank uh, the viewing parties in San Francisco and Washington, D.C. Welcome to all of you. We look forward to seeing how you vote on that. And I would like to once again ask for a round of applause for our debaters. <laughs> True or false, clean energy can drive America's economic recovery. Well, let's have it out. This is a debate from Intelligence Squared U.S., I'm John Donvan of ABC News. We are at the Skirball Center for the Performing Arts at New York University, where we have two teams of debaters, two against two. They include a governor, an investor in green energy, a thinker on green energy, and a writer on the topic. They will be trying to change your minds because this is a debate. It is not a, it is not a seminar or a panel discussion. It is a contest, a contest of ideas and, and logic and well-presented argument. In this case, you, our live audience, are our judges. By the time the debate has ended, you will have been asked to vote twice, once before the debate and once again at the end of the debate. And the team that has changed the most minds in the course of the arguing will be declared our winners. So let's go to register your first vote on the motion. Our motion is clean energy can drive America's economic recovery. If you agree with the motion, push number one, if you disagree, push number two, and if you're undecided, push number three. And if you feel you've made a mistake, just correct your mistake and the system will lock in your last vote. Um, I just want to ask, technically, I have a, a problem with the wire into my ear. I've been hearing delightful music, so, so I've pulled it out. So we're going to take a little bit of a break. In San Francisco and, and Washington, I understand they're actually in a restaurant. So at this point, while we're doing this, you can all move on to the hors d'oeuvres. <laughs> and can I just get a test from the truck that I can? Yeah, I hear you clearly. Terrifically. Okay, we're all back in business again. So you've now voted. That has been locked in. And at the end of the debate, uh, you'll vote again after the closing arguments, and very quickly we will have the results. So, our motion is clean energy can drive America's economic recovery. On to round one. Opening statements by each debater in turn. They will be seven minutes each. And debating first for the motion, I'd like to introduce Bill Ritter, former governor of Colorado, whose state has the fourth highest concentration of clean energy workers in the country. He's now director of the Center for the New Energy Economy at Colorado State University. And Bill, I think with a resume like that, America wants to know, what kind of car does a former governor of Colorado drive? <laughs> That's a great question. Uh, I have four kids, uh, my wife, family of six, so I have a lot of options. We have our own fleet. I did just because I'm commuting buy a 1999 Saab that gets a little over 30 miles to the gallon. So you're, you're putting your money I was driven for is. four years in a row, so I had to do something other than it's find nice a driver. It's nice to be driven. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Bill Ritter.
Thanks, John. And thank you for being here tonight uh, to discuss what I think is one of the most important issues that we have really as a nation facing us. You know, Americans are not a group of people that sit out a revolution. If you think about our founding and where we come from, uh, we began with, an, um, with a revolution, the American Revolutionary War. And there have been a few revolutions in our time as well that Americans have not just participated in, but they've led. Think about the Industrial Revolution, where we established really our ability to be an economic powerhouse. Or more recently, the Information Revolution, where we reaffirmed in the minds of the world our ability as innovators and creators and inventors, people who really understand the power of technological development. Well, there is this revolution that's upon us now. It is the clean energy revolution, and it's global. And the question we have before us as Americans is, will we lead or will we follow? Will we accept a place on the sidelines or will we actively participate in moving this issue ahead? Tonight I'm joined by Cassia Janosek, who's my partner in this. We're going to get to hear Cassia as well, but we stand for the proposition tonight that, in fact, clean energy can drive America's economic recovery. Energy itself, just if you think about the revenues generated globally, is the largest industry in terms of revenue generation. So if we get it right, it absolutely can be a significant part of our economic recovery. And it's important for us to define the terms to some extent. When people hear clean energy, a lot of places in the world, they think it's just wind or just solar. Cassie and I tonight... We're going to talk about clean energy in this broad spectrum. It is about renewables, about solar and wind and geothermal and biomass, but it's also about all those parts of the spectrum that involve the things that we're doing to promote clean energy and the research and development laboratories across this country, both public and private, how you commercialize that technology and get it into the marketplace, those things that involve transmission and smart grid technology that help us to manage loads on grid, those, uh, those parts of the clean energy world that involve transportation, think electric vehicles or fuel cell vehicles, hybrid cars, the, again, the broad spectrum. When we think about clean energy, we do think about natural gas and, and believe that natural gas and nuclear and even clean coal can perhaps play a role in building out a clean energy economy in America and that it has to be every part of that from stem to stern in terms of our thinking about it. It's important for us to understand as well that workforce development has to be part of our policy considerations. So I think one of the reasons I'm here tonight, one of the reasons I was fortunate to be invited because as the Colorado governor, I said, in Colorado, we're going to build a new energy economy. And I said this when I was campaigning. In over a four-year period, we signed 50, I signed 57 different bills into law, bills that we believe made a tremendous difference as it related to our energy portfolio going forward, but particularly relevant to tonight's topic, made a significant difference in our ability to see economic development attached to clean energy. Uh, one of those bills was a renewable energy standard bill in the first 100 days that took us to a 20% standard by 2020 with a rate cap in place for consumers. In fact, last year, the utility and I, after talking with each other, said, you know what, we can get to 30% by 2020 with the same rate cap in place. So as a state, we've got a 30% renewable energy standard. But in those 57 bills, we did smart metering, meaning 
people who are residential and industrial consumers can actually get paid if they put energy back onto the grid. We did a variety of things to inspire the build-out of transmission, inspire new technology. Energy efficiency. When we talk about clean energy, energy efficiency is one of the most significant things we as a country can do to move this country in a direction toward, in fact, a clean energy economy. So I'm not going to go through the 57 bills, but what I'll tell you is the proof is in the pudding. We had significant economic development tied to that. And I'll give you just a couple of examples. Vestas Wind Turbines, the Danish company, building wind turbines in Colorado, uh, made the announcement just after I made the, signed the bill that allowed us to go to a 20% by 2020. They, in fact, then have four factories since that they've announced. At the end of the day, it's going to be 2,600 employees, a billion-dollar investment. SMA, it's a German company. They're manufacturing solar inverters in Colorado for the first time outside of Germany. We have homegrown companies, companies, again, where the technology was developed in a laboratory in Colorado, either the National Renewable Energy Laboratory or one of our research universities or even private laboratories. One of the thin film photovoltaic uh, technologies was developed in a Lockheed Martin laboratory. And so we commercialized that and see these, these companies grow from the ground up. We've seen all sorts of growth in Colorado in this sector, even during a recession. And it's not just Colorado. If you look around the country, in places in the Midwest, in the South, in the Southeast, in California, in the Northeast, here in New York, we've seen all sorts of investments in clean energy that is related to job growth. If you look at the last 10 years, and you look at sort of, if you look at Michigan, for example, where they've had terrible job loss in many of their conventional sectors, they've seen job increases, a 5.7% increase in jobs in Michigan over the last decade. Colorado had an 18% increase, and as John said, we're the fourth, if you look at, at where we stand. Uh, we are fourth in, in terms of how we have clean tech workers as a state. Now, in my last minute, I'm just going to tell you, there's a reason for doing this that's beyond just the economic development. We have a powerful example in Colorado, powerful examples around the country that demonstrate economic development as a part of this. But there's a couple of other things that are very important, too. When you build out a clean energy economy, you, you actually do something in a very significant way to address the environmental challenges that are upon us. Even if you don't believe that global warming is human cause, there are still significant environmental challenges that are a part of a carbon-based energy production sector. And in addition to that, you wind up addressing another very serious problem we have in this country, which is energy security. Domestically produced energy does a variety of things, including reducing our, our trade deficit and reducing it in such a way that we can look and say the health of the country is better going forward because we have, we have proposed an agenda that relies upon domestically produced energy. It's the trifecta, right? It is about energy security, it's about environmental security, and it's about economic security. Thank you very much. Thank you, Bill Ritter. Our motion at this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, clean energy can drive America's economic recovery. Now to speak against that motion, Stephen Hayward, a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, a senior fellow at the Pacific Research Institute for Public Policy, who, who wrote when, uh, when Al Gore was given the Nobel Peace Prize, you, you wrote that it was a further degradation, of a, a further debasement of a once prestigious award for, for Parson Al. Are you saying our former vice president's a little preachy? <laughs> I think it's fairly self-evident, isn't it? Ladies and gentlemen, Stephen Hayward. Well, thank you, John. 
Our case against the motion tonight comes in two main parts. First, that it represents a brazen case of bait and switch. I thought there'd be two of them. I've already heard a third one already tonight. And second, that it rests on a basic but surprisingly widespread economic fallacy that paying more for energy will somehow make us richer. There are a number of collateral arguments uh, in our case, which my partner Robert Bryce will explore further, such as the fact that most forms of so-called clean energy are inferior energy sources ill-suited to many of our needs. Now, the bait and switch comes in just two parts. I'll have to leave the third for later. We've been told for the better part of the last two decades that we need to make a rapid transition to clean energy away from fossil fuels in order to stave off climate catastrophe. And all of the official assessments of the matter from the national and international bodies that have studied the matter, such as the UN's IPCC, concluded that the cost of doing so would be substantial. Uh, and uh, the pessimists said the cost uh, that it would hurt economic growth and lower GDP. The pessimists said it would hurt a lot. The optimists said the cost would be only modest. But the point is, all of the assessments concluded that the sign before the economic cost would be negative. But with the collapse of meaningful climate legislation here and abroad uh, and the arrival of the Great Recession, suddenly the argument for clean energy has been shifted into the form of tonight's motion. Clean energy will make us richer. It is the path to prosperity itself. Happy days are here again. It's the new domain of free lunch economics. I call it free lumens. Now, the basic problem with so-called clean energy is that nearly every form of it is more expensive than the fossil fuel energy it seeks to displace. Now, I know of no economic theory that says the economy benefits by reducing the purchasing power of consumers. The case for this motion rests on the same fallacy as the retailer who loses money on each sale but promises to make up for it with additional volume. The second bait and switch concerns what we mean by clean energy because the working definition of clean energy seems to shift to make the term almost meaningless. Typically, clean energy has meant purely renewable sources such as wind, solar, tidal energy, and geothermal, along with environmentally neutral technologies like biomass and biofuels, though I should add that corn ethanol badly fails the test of environmental neutrality. And despite more than 30 years of strong emphasis on these sources, they still account for less than 5% of our energy supply. But now suddenly we're told that natural gas is a clean energy source that should be used to displace coal. But there's something very odd if we're now counting a fossil fuel, a finite hydrocarbon, as a clean energy source. Do carbon dioxide emissions no longer matter in the definition of clean energy? Consider that climate uh, policy orthodoxy says we need to reduce our carbon dioxide emissions to 1 billion tons by the year 2050. Today, right now, carbon dioxide emissions from current use of natural gas, 1.2 billion tons above the target for every source for the year 2050. This is why the Sierra Club two weeks ago changed its position and said we should now make it an object of national policy to phase out natural gas entirely by the year 2050. Their director of climate and energy told Politico two weeks ago, quote, we want people to know that natural gas is not a clean fuel. Mark Brownstein of Environmental Defense told Politico, quote, simply because coal is awful doesn't mean natural gas gets to be terrible. How is it that natural gas, which, as I say, produces over a billion tons of CO2, is clean energy, but nuclear power, which produces zero CO2 emissions, is usually considered not to be clean energy? Governor Ritter includes it as clean energy. The U.S. Congress specifically excluded it from climate and energy legislation the last two years. Moreover, if natural gas is clean energy, then guess what? So is oil. An awful lot of natural gas is produced in the production of oil, and oil has almost the same greenhouse gas emissions per unit of energy produced as natural gas. And if you're willing to spend enough money, you can make coal clean. Governor Ritter used the same phrase President Obama likes to use, clean coal. 
And so you're left with the rest of the clean energy suite uh, that uh, cannot scale up without mandates and massive subsidies from taxpayers, and even then they still fail. In recent months, you've seen solar power makers like Solyndra in California and Evergreen Solar in Massachusetts lay off 1,000 employees and cut about half their production capacity despite receiving nearly a billion dollars in loan guarantees and subsidies from government. And we've seen a number of biofuel companies fail despite mandates and lavish subsidies. Uh, now, the idea that clean energy will be the sector that leads us out of the recession is equally risible. Uh, there are a number of studies on this. Uh, I'll give you one quotation from a study from the Stanford University's very highly regarded energy modeling forum that concluded, quote, the advantages of increased jobs from renewable energy are vastly overstated at, at cost prevailing today. They note that uh, most uh, energy investments produce between two and six jobs. That's true of conventional uh, oil and coal and natural gas, but also of renewable uh, sources like windmills. But of course, if you spend a million dollars on uh, in any sector of the economy, the Department of Commerce's models say you get about 9.7 new jobs. That's why the Energy Modeling Forum concluded, quote, electricity generation across all sources creates far fewer jobs than other activities in the economy. Subsidies to either green or conventional sources will detract rather than expand the economy's job base because they will shift investments from other sectors that will create more employment. In other words, if you're looking for a sector to generate job growth to lead us out of the recession, the energy sector, clean or otherwise, isn't it. Now, I'll conclude with an observation on the essential absurdity of this motion. If this motion were true, we would not need to debate it at all. Did we have to debate whether railroads and automobiles and the telegraph and the telephone would transform transportation and communication? Did we have to debate whether the technology revolution and the Internet would change our lives and, and change American productivity? Did we 100 years ago have to debate the motion that new oil, coal, and gas supplies will power the next generation of American industry? Of course not. And above all, did we ever need a mandate from the government like a renewable portfolio standard to get consumers to buy cars or desktop computers? The answer to that is fairly obvious. Uh, clean energy, however defined, does not resemble any of the past histories of recession-busting forces. And the odd thing is, is most recession-busting forces, like the housing sector in previous uh, recessions, are because there's pent-up demand. There actually isn't a pent-up demand for new energy at the moment. Energy consumption in America has fallen sharply as a, a, a result of the recession. Our energy consumption is down by the largest percentage amount since the end of World War II. So building new energy supplies right now makes about as much sense as building new tracks of suburban housing. And by the way, none of the ideas I've heard tonight, with the partial exception of electrified cars such as hybrids, do anything to affect the one part of the energy picture that bothers us the most, and that's our dependence on foreign oil. Most of what you're going to hear tonight is about the electricity sector. We can put a windmill on every single house in America and, and put every, uh, solar panels on every roof, and it will not reduce our oil imports at all. The motion, in my mind, fails badly. Thank you, Stephen Hayward. So here's where we are. We are halfway through the opening statements in this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan of ABC News. We have four debaters, two teams of two, fighting it out over this motion, clean energy can drive America's economic recovery. You've heard two opening statements, and now on to the third. Cassia Janosek is founding principal of Tana Energy uh, Capital and co-founder of the U.S. Partnership for Renewable Energy Finance. We also want to thank her. We were originally uh, going to have Dan Riker, 
uh, was going to be sitting in this seat. He is literally snowed in after an avalanche hit a road in Utah last night. Cassia came extremely highly recommended and was also an enormously good sport to step in on several hours' notice. So we want to thank you, first of all, for that. And um, Cassia, um, when, I, when I did my quick research on you, I went to YouTube and I found an, a video of you standing in a business suit holding a live frog, which was what? Well, first of all, I love frogs. Um, <laughs> And I'm willing to hold one in a business suit. Um, but it was a, a function I went to in the U.K. for the Prince's Rainforest Project. So it was, was a promotional. It was a promotional. And I'm assuming that no frogs were harmed in the filming of that promotion. No, it was a, a video effect. Ladies and gentlemen, Cassia Janicek. Thank you. Uh, again, my name is Cassia Janicek, and I come to Unite as an investor. I've been an investor in the energy sector for the past decade. And I used to invest in dirty energy. My background includes investing at Bechtel Enterprises, the private equity of, uh, uh, arm of Bechtel, which is a large engineering firm. Um, I also worked at BP. So I started out my career investing in coal and gas. And, um, you know, as an investor, I look for the biggest growth markets. So that's why I'm a clean energy investor right now. Um, I don't sit in an ivory tower or a think tank. Uh, instead, I often sit in airplane seats, <laughs> travel around the country, roll up my sleeves, meet with energy innovators and entrepreneurs, and I figure out where to create value in this economy, which is why we're here tonight, and this is what we're talking about tonight. Um, you know, most recently, uh, before starting my firm, I was a senior member of a billion-dollar private equity firm that's deployed millions of capital in the sector of clean, clean energy. Um, I currently invest with New York investment houses around the, the subject of innovation and clean energy technologies. And that's where I think the opportunities are in this market. So I'm going to give you the real story tonight about why clean energy will drive our economic recovery. Um, the other thing I'll, I'd like to point out is that I actually don't even think we should be having this debate, not will it or won't it drive economic prosperity, but how it can drive our economy. We need to start competing and get out from behind our computers where we write op-eds, stop resting on our laurels of the past, Stop wimping out about how China is going to cream us. Is that any way to win a match or a race? So my goal tonight is to convince us that we can continue to be an innovation leader in other sectors that we've done in the past, and that clean energy is the next growth market for the U.S. And here's why clean energy can drive economic growth. I'm going to give you three reasons. First of all, innovation and new industries drive job creation and investment. And I'm going to provide some examples from IT to the auto industry and also why government has in the past and needs to continue to be an integral part of this growth um, for the energy sector. Number two, clean energy will drive exports, which are critical to our future growth. So instead of complaining about China, let's start competing so we can sell into China. And then third, we do need to talk about the, our dependence on oil. Oil does not help economic recovery. Our dependence on oil doesn't help economic recovery. It actually hinders economic recovery. So we actually need a broad menu of energy options to reduce our dependence on any one commodity, which smooths out, volatil smooths out volatility and helps our economy grow. So point number one, innovation drives uh, job creation and lower costs in, in, in our energy sector. You know, we can see this in the IT markets. We now lead the world in research product and deployment, and certainly Silicon Valley has been a, a huge driving force of the U.S. economy. 
Right now, I believe that about 16% of our total exports um, are related to advanced technologies. Well, guess what? That wasn't part of our, a part of our economy 30 to 40 years ago. So clean energy has, has a great future ahead of it if we're going to actually put our heads together and start innovating. Um, and government was a big part of that. DARPA, which is an arm of the government, was instrumental in the development of the Internet. And secondly, the auto industry. Dinosaur industry, you know, we got our pants beat off by, by Japan. Um, but guess what? Detroit is turning around. We're starting to see Ford, Chevrolet start developing electric vehicles. There's a lot of activity out there, and it's, it's winning accolades. So it really debunks this view that we can't afford to have this job creation in the United States. And then finally, without going too much into the weeds, I'll point out some obvious uh, statistics about how clean energy is driving investment in jobs. Last year, $243 billion was invested in, in clean energy globally. This is essentially uh, a 25% compound average growth rate that we've seen over the past five years. And this is really one of the biggest drivers that we're seeing in the, in the markets today. Um, in the past 10 years, clean jobs grew actually 9.1% in the United States, while total jobs grew by only 3.7%. So actually I have a little bit of different perspective and some different statistics than my opponents over there. And then finally, I'll point out that costs are coming down, account down the curve. Electric batteries cost uh, about $1,000 a kilowatt hour two years ago. Today it's about half that, and we're on track for some, some very competitive uh, technologies that we're going to see in our, in our electric vehicles within the next 10 years. So we're starting to see a real big steepness in, in the innovation curve. Um, point two, clean energy will drive exports, which are critical to our future growth. It's important that we grow a domestic market, not only for us, but for our export markets. It's an opportunity worth trillions of dollars and millions of jobs. Uh, our, my opponent actually pointed out a very important point. There is not a whole lot of energy growth going on in the U.S. now and in the next 10 to 20 years. 90% of the growth in energy consumption over the next two decades is going to come from developing countries. So we better get on that so we can actually benefit from the growth that we're going to see in these, uh, in these, ex uh, these export markets. Um, so finally, you know, we need to learn from the information technology industry. We need to develop the energy economy the way we did with IT, and we're starting to do that. Clean tech really is where information technology was 30 years ago and where biotech was 20 years ago. So we're at the beginning of a very long and prosperous uh, future for this sector. And then point three, we need a portfolio of energy choices. Dependence on fossil fuels doesn't help economic recovery. As I said, it actually hinders it. Um, you know, we're seeing $100 oil. We've, we've seen this happen before, and, and price spikes really do not help the economy. Rising energy prices act as a, as a drag on GDP growth. A 10% oil shock is you know, could actually lower GDP growth by 0.2% per year for the next two years, and that's a recent statistic that Goldman Sachs has put out. Um, we're also seeing that, you know, uh, high oil prices can increase inflation, which compresses corporate margins, uh, impacts the consumers. So when we talk about the price of energy, I don't necessarily see that the current state of affairs in fossil fuel is actually helping um, the energy economy and keeping costs down for consumers. So essentially, with that, I'm, I'm going to close with, the, with the, bringing you back to the, to the focus of this debate, which is that clean energy can drive uh, the future of our economy. And frankly, if you're not for the clean energy economy, then you're actually not for economic recovery. Thank you. Thank you.
Our motion is clean energy can drive America's economic recovery. And here to speak against the motion, Robert Bryce. He is the author of Power Hungry, the Myths of Green Energy and the Real Fuels of the Future. He's a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and former managing editor of the Energy Tribune. And, and you write, Robert, in one of your books about uh, your experience with solar panels, which you've installed on your house in Austin. And uh, you conclude that after all, you're just not sure they're worth it. Why? Well, that's true. Um, what I have happened to get there, there, I have to get up there and clean them, for one. Um, <laughs> second, the economics. If the, Well, the reason I did it, I got a subsidy, nice big fat subsidy. Uh, the city of Austin paid two-thirds of the cost, um, so I got a $23,000 system for about $8,000. But the payback, assuming no cost of capital and assuming electric rates stay flat, is 20 years. Life of the panel is about 20 years. So I don't know whether it's a good investment or not. We'll see. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, Robert Price. So please, by a show of hands, who here is in favor of dirty energy? Uh, one. Okay, two, maybe. Okay, thank you. That's what I expected. Well, the fact is that clean energy sounds tremendously appealing. There is no question about it. And debunking clean energy is a dirty job, but Steve and I are here to do that, just that. <laughs> Reality is that clean energy is not a specific thing. It is a marketing slogan. Remember, the Waxman-Markey bill in 2009 was called the American Clean Energy and Security Act. To the specifics, Governor Ritter mentioned natural gas. I am as pro-natural gas as anyone. I'm also ardently pro-nuclear, end-to-end, natural gas to nuclear. I believe these are the paths to the future for a number of reasons. Um, but he also included in his statement that coal, natural gas, nuclear, wind, and solar are clean. The reality is if all of our energy sources are clean, then none of them are. Regarding clean coal, I view that as oxymoronic, akin to family vacation or jumbo shrimp. <laughs> Took a while, but I'm glad you finally got it. Thank you. Wind energy is, is often viewed as the political darling of the moment. This is the clean energy source of the future. Well, if you saw WGBH just yesterday... They had a story about Falmouth, Massachusetts, in which they talked about the objections and, in fact, the, uh, the uh, strenuous uh, protest by local residents against a new wind turbine in that town. I can point you to localities all over the world. I have interviewed people in New Zealand, Australia, Ontario, Nova Scotia, Missouri, Wisconsin, New York. Some very uh, 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 heated debates here in New York State over the siding of industrial wind turbines. What is the problem? Infrasound, low-level noise that is driving people out of their homes. The wind energy industry says, oh, well, these people that are complaining just need psychological counseling. I kid you not. This is a serious problem that they cannot solve, and they try to dismiss it out of hand. It cannot be resolved. Um, our, my opponent said that natural gas, or rather that fossil fuels, can't possibly lead to any kind of economic recovery. I, I completely disagree. Natural gas today is selling for less than $4. Why? Because of tremendous technological innovation in the upstream oil and gas business. It's selling for about $4 per million uh, BTUs. That's a reduction of about $3 per MMBTU compared to just three years ago. That reduction in price is one of the rare bright spots in the commodity markets in the U.S. It is now saving American consumers $65 billion per year or $180 million per day, and that's a minimum number. 
The reality is clean energy is such a nebulous phrase, it, it cannot possibly be supported because the phrase doesn't mean anything. Therefore, you must vote against. <laughs> Second point, green jobs do not exist or are so expensive as to be crippling to the economy. If you believe the corn ethanol scammers, one of the longest-running robberies of taxpayers in this country's history, they just put out a report last month that said they support 70,000 jobs. Well, if you believe the Congressional Budget Office numbers, the total taxpayer cost of the corn ethanol scam is over $16 billion. That works out to $230,000 per job. What about the wind industry? We hear this continually from the American Wind Energy Association. Oh, we're creating all kinds of manufacturing jobs, blah, 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 blah. Texas Comptroller Public Accounts uh, student uh, Susan Combs just came out with a report in December estimated that every wind job in Texas, where I live, Texas leads the country in, new, uh, in wind generation capacity, 10,000 megawatts. Each job associated with the wind industry costs $1.6 million to the taxpayers. Third point, clean energy cannot possibly drive America's economic recovery because it is simply too small in scale. I pride myself on doing my research, doing my numbers. Here they are. Every day, coal provides about 10 million barrels of oil equivalent to the U.S. economy. Natural gas provides about 12 million barrels of oil equivalent every day to the U.S. economy. We also use roughly 17 million barrels of oil. So roughly 39 million barrels of oil equivalent from those three hydrocarbons, that dirty, nasty energy that nobody likes but everybody uses. Okay, so what about the political darlings of the moment, the clean energy sources that we've been discussing here, uh, non-hydro sources, because we can't build any more dams here, geothermal, wind, biomass, and solar. In 2010, according to the EIA, they provided 166 million megawatt hours of electricity to the U.S. That works out to 277,000 barrels of oil equivalent per day. So... How does that compare then? If we just look at the two dirty, nasty sources of energy, oil and coal, they provide 100 times as much energy to the U.S. economy as the political darlings of the moment, the clean energy darlings of the moment. And if we include natural gas, which I believe is clean um, and, and, and incredibly pro-natural gas, this, the, the, the ratio is 140 times as much energy from the three hydrocarbons as we get from the clean energy sources. We could double, triple, quadruple, quintuple the amount of energy that we're getting from the clean energy sources that we're discussing here, it will be so small as to make no difference to the U.S. economy, and it certainly will not drive America's economic recovery. Therefore, you must vote against the motion. Final point. Clean energy cannot fuel America's economic recovery because it is simply too expensive. Latest data from the Energy Information Administration um, estimate that over the next five years or so, gas-fired electricity will cost about $63 per megawatt hour. Onshore wind will cost about 50% more than that. Offshore wind, four times as much as that. And solar thermal generated electricity, five times as much as that. In January, the Los Angeles Times reported on uh, the city of Los Angeles' goal of having 33% of its electricity coming from renewables by 2020. I quote from the Times that, that, that this, this push for renewables could result in electricity rate hikes of 5 to 8 percent in each of the next five years. What's happening now, the city of Los Angeles is quietly rolling back the renewable, uh, the renewable targets. In the governor's, uh, Governor Ritter's home state, electricity rates have increased by 21 percent over the past six years, and the Denver Post just reported they're likely to increase by uh, 20 percent over the next six 
Over the last six years, the increase has been twice the rate of inflation. The reality is that oil price spikes hurt the U.S. economy. There's no question about that. But the, uh, with the coming uh, rate, electricity rate hikes that will come from these renewable portfolio standards in the electricity markets will be even worse for the economic recovery. You must vote against the motion. Thank you. Thank you, Robert Price. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. Now on to round two, where the debaters address each other directly and answer questions from you in the audience and from me, John Donvan. We're here at the uh, Skirball Center at New York University in New York. We have two teams of two on the stage. Bill Ritter and Cassia Janicek are arguing for the motion, clean energy can drive America's economic recovery. They are arguing that clean energy is a growth field, it is a revolution, you don't sit out revolutions. Their opponents, Robert Bryce and Stephen Hayward, are arguing as a resolution, it's very tiny, more of a fantasy. We're going to now take questions from you and from them and have them mix it up directly. And I want to I go to to the side arguing against the motion, against the clean energy as the solution for America's economic recovery. Your, your opponents have made the case that, that the clean energy field represents a field of innovation, that innovation leads to jobs, innovation leads to exports. They cite the computer industry in our lifetimes as an example of this. Okay, so there's a certain logic to that that I think you can see. Sure. Take it on, Robert Price. I'm glad to. This is an easy one. Um, what is the most admired company in America today? Well, it might be Google. I would argue it's Apple. Apple's market cap today is over $330 billion. What does Apple do? It designs its products in the United States and manufactures them in China. Are we supposed to be opposed to that? Are we supposed to say, oh, no, Apple, you have to, uh, you have to manufacture those products here in the U.S., even though it would be much more expensive, and then you need to export them? This makes no sense whatsoever. Apple is an incredibly dynamic company, an incredibly successful company, one of the most admired companies in the world, and yet we're told, oh, no, there's something wrong with that. Further, an, uh, another just quick point. Uh, we heard that $243 billion is invested globally in clean energy. I, no doubt that that's the, uh, maybe the correct number. I can tell you that it, here in the United States, the upstream oil and gas industry spends that much alone drilling new oil and gas wells every year. You don't think that they're innovating? Of course they're innovating. And what have we seen? Incredible success in the shale gas revolution that is driving right. down the cost. So let me of, go to your opponents. Your, your, the, the, team the team arguing for clean energy as uh, a driver of the economy, you've heard he's basically saying that, um, yeah, there's innovation, but there's not much bang for the buck. Can you take that on? Cassie Yanisak. Sure. Well, I think that, you know, first of all, we're going to have to define what clean energy is. Clean energy is not just wind and solar, which I agree makes up a very small portion, less than 8% of our global uh, of our U.S. power generation. We have to include cleaner sources, cleaner ways to develop and, and produce energy that's being produced from coal and natural gas and nuclear. So when we talk about clean energy and the opportunity for economic growth, we're, we're not just limiting ourselves to renewables here. We're actually bringing in the opportunity to bring down costs, improve efficiency. One thing we haven't even started talking about tonight is actually energy efficiency and the opportunities there. So first of all, I would say that, number one, this is not a small industry. This is a huge industry, and there's so but, much But the wind, the wind power part of it, uh -huh. they're right, is a small part of it. It's minuscule Wind and solar make up about 5% 5, 5 of our global power generation, or in the, well, definitely in the United States. And do you see that becoming significantly more in the near to midterm future? Um, it's certainly growing by leaps and bounds. 
But, and so as an investor, I care about growth and where the, where the best opportunities for investment are. So certainly the growth is happening mm -hmm. in, in, in the renewable sector at a much higher growth rate than traditional energy. Okay. But I would say that when we're talking about how do you grow the clean economy, it's about growing opportunities broadly speaking. And there are new innovations we haven't even thought about. I mean, think about the electric vehicle market. We didn't think about building that market 10 years ago. So there are step changes that we haven't seen that we need to be innovating for now. Stephen Hayward, electric vehicles. Uh, well, uh, they've got an awful long way to go yet. Their performance metrics are not very good. Uh, but that doesn't mean they can't improve. No, but you're going to need to make some huge breakthroughs in battery technology and, and other things to make them work. We're sort of going step by step, and I'm something of an optimist on that. But look, let's suppose we made a magic wand and we, elect, uh, we invent the perfect electric vehicle tomorrow that can be sold at a competitive price to a gasoline engine. We have, what, 100 million cars in this country? 200, Most, 200 million. 200, those people normally keep their cars 10 to 15 years. People aren't going to rush out and buy 200 million cars in the next two years if we do that. So that means we need oil for quite a while to come, right? Uh, I, just want to, I have to say one other thing, though, to respond to uh, Cassie directly uh, about energy efficiency. And, and the cars are part of the story, but they're a separate thing, too. Um, if this debate were scored by the very strict rules of the Oxford Union, Cassie would be ruled out of order for not speaking to the motion. Energy efficiency is about the consumption of energy and how much we consume. Clean energy refers to the supply of energy. We're talking about two different things here. Simple thought experiment seems to me clears this up. If you have a factory that gets all of its electricity by coal-fired power and you insulate it, do all the things we want to do to weatherize it, you lower your electricity consumption 25%, does that make that energy from the coal-fired power plant clean energy all of a sudden? This is like saying we have a motion saying you should eat more vegetables because it's good for your nutrition, and then arguing, but actually you should just eat less food overall. Let's bring in Bill Ritter. Well, I think that's I, – I disagree that Cassie should be thrown out of this debate. I, I just <laughs> think that that would be an awful thing for my team. But here's the deal. Uh, why, why are we talking about clean? I mean – we say new energy, right? No, no, we say new energy. The, the energy sources aren't new. The energy sources are all, have all been there. But the transfer has been to talking about clean because we care about emissions. And, and that's really what, I mean, why, why, would, we, why would we do this at all? Um, because we care about what we admit. We, and and if, you, if you don't buy into human change or human-caused climate change, there are still serious environmental hazards that happen from burning hydrocarbons, right? So we care about clean. And think about an industry that's focused on people using less energy and actually by using less energy, bringing down the cost of energy, that would be the cleanest form of energy because you're not, you're not emitting at all. You're reason. And so, you know, we've done a variety of things as a state that looks at how we go into homes where people are on fixed incomes, low incomes, but they don't have very efficient homes. And we try and do what we can to modernize those homes. But Bill, to bring in, down in, their in, energy in your costs. opening, I had I had more the sense that your argument was that the that the this innovative industry would require will, will will create jobs with the establishment of the plants and the factories that build the turbines and 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 that sort of thing. And you're you're broadening it now to to uh, and am I right that that was your point? Well, I, I no, I mentioned energy efficiency somewhere in my opening and right. probably didn't give it enough play perhaps uh, because I do think that it is this powerful part of our thinking about clean energy that, that we can build an industry around it. And, and quite frankly, a lot of that industry has to do with the construction industry. Uh, if you look at this goal that we would reduce our emissions by 80% by 2050, 
There are people, scientists, who believe that we could get there 40% of the way there just by retrofitting the built environment. And that's about energy efficiency. But, that's, but still, Robert I think we, you haven't answered uh, Steve's fundamental point, which is the motion is clean energy can drive America's economic recovery. I'm all for efficiency. Who isn't? Every engineer in the world is for efficiency. We are getting dramatically more efficient. Today in America, we use about the same amount of oil as we did in 1973, even though we drive twice as many miles and have twice as many cars. But clean energy, the motion is about the production of energy. That's the key point. But so I think your opponents are arguing that clean and efficient may be the same thing. Well, uh, but I, I think that that is not, it's not, it, that is not what the motion it, it says. That is not what the motion speaks The motion to. is about clean, and it's how you define clean. So as well, the okay, well, then, said, well, then tell us what clean is, because I'm still confused. I think the governor had a, a, a very strong point that clean is about, is, it could be defined as reducing emissions. And so by improving the efficiency of a coal-fired power plant, a natural gas turbine, that, in our definition, is clean. John, if I may, uh, by that definition, all fossil fuels are clean. A few facts about this. We have tripled the amount of coal burned in this country since 1970 and reduced sulfur dioxide emissions at that same period by 70%. And the EPA expects that we will fall a further 50% from current levels just based on existing control technologies that are going to be uh, retrofitted on plants. Uh, right now, uh, changes in technology for burning oil mean that uh, emissions from our car and truck fleet of conventional air pollutants are falling by about 8% a year on net. The EPA's own projections, which they never seem to talk about much, project that uh, emissions of conventional air pollutants from the car and truck fleet will fall about another 70% over the next 20 years. And I've been saying for a long time that our grandchildren are going to say, Smog, what was that all about? And we're actually, having grown up in L.A., believe me, that's an impressive thing to say. Um, I mean, I really, I really can't imagine that you're nobody. saying that we should not, that we should sustain this level of emissions from coal-burning plants that we currently have. You know, no, you, what I'm you, saying you is your definition out, of clean is incoherent. Yeah, no, no, it's not, because you can look <laughs> at the different kinds of things that we are, we, we are undertaking to lessen emissions, and if you drive it, you know, the operating principle here is that we should look at, uh, emissions, you pick out sulfur dioxide. We've done a good job with sulfur dioxide, but if you put in place, let's take natural gas, natural gas turbine, yeah, you decrease sulfur dioxide and, and nitrous oxygen by 70 to 80 percent. You wipe out the mercury. So you're not mentioning mercury. We have lakes in this country we don't eat fish out of because of mercury that is part of coal pollutants. Robert Price. Uh, mercury emissions, let by me, the way, see, have fallen 60 percent in the last 15 years, by the way. Robert but you Price. can eliminate the mercury through natural gas turbines. As Robert well. Price. I think that, 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 that clearly, <laughs> thank you, John. Sure. Can you say that one more time? Um, we are using more natural gas. Why are we using more natural gas? The coal industry is under a, 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 obviously a, a lot of regulatory pressure for mercury. I think it's appropriate. They're also under uh, regulatory pressure for coal ash. That's certainly appropriate. But last year, in 20, 2010, according to EIA, the U.S. Used, used more natural gas than it ever has, 24.1 trillion cubic feet. And yet still, the price of gas has fallen. That is incredibly good news. Your, your, your position is that Natural gas is clean. I agree. Your other position is that somehow that fossil fuels are not a benefit to the economy, which I think is completely untenable. But let me move on to one other point. That is, clean energy, the fundamental question here, clean energy adds nothing to the economy. It is only a substitution for existing electricity. Do I care these lights? I, I like electricity. Uh, if, but if this, wind, if this electricity is coming from a wind turbine or a solar panel and it costs twice as much as the electricity I might get from a coal-fired or natural gas-fired power plant, 
Where is the benefit to me? Let's let Cassie I'll, I'll gladly pay for a nicer tire. Cassie, on a second, it's answer that question. If clean energy is more expensive than conventional energy, then how does that help the economy? Well, actually, I think you're wrong on that point. I mean, if you if you look at the numbers, and I know you've got the numbers because you, you your side clearly has all the numbers. Um, <laughs> they, are, they are they are important. Um, you know, the IEA, for example, has done a study of the amount of subsidies that go for the, the fossil fuel generation uh, globally. I believe that number last year was 312 billion. Uh, for renewables, it was about 37 billion. So you're, we're not really comparing apples to apples here. So, you know, I'll, I'll just start with that. Um, but secondly, you know, I want to clear up this point about what... Wait, I, I, I'm not satisfied with your answer to his point. It wasn't detailed enough for me. The, the notion that, and I, I think most of us have that sense that, that energy provided through alternate, what we would call renewable alternative means costs more now, now and, and will for the long future, and that that doesn't sound like a way to, to lift off. Let's build Ritter. I think you're coming out. So I'll tell you in Colorado, coal uh, without any price on carbon is six cents a kilowatt hour. Wind is about nine. Coal can get to six and a half. Wind is at nine. And when I became governor, solar was like uh, 40% more than it is now in four year. In a four year period, solar came down 40%. Still not competitive with, with wind if you just say apples to apples. But, you know, this is the kind of argument that you hear from you guys. And, and, and I'm thinking here about the flat screen TV. It was $15,000 a TV four years ago, and now it's $350. So we give up on flat screen TVs because they cost way too much. This is something that's happening, as I think Casilla said, this happened around the world, right? That people are looking for clean energy alternatives. You've got wind without a price on carbon, very close to coal. You've got solar coming down 40%, and it is our, okay. it's incumbent upon us so you're, to be innovators are, and inventors. Your argument is through innovation, the prices are going to get lower, and I want to take that back to Robert. Well, Price. let me just address the subsidy question. The effective subsidy for wind now is two cents per kilowatt hour. But let's compare apples to apples and take it to per million BTU cost. That is an effective subsidy of $6.44 per million BTU of energy created by the wind industry. The market price, the market price for natural gas today is under $4. You're talking about now, but your opponents are talking about a future in which the price will get lower through innovation. That's the point well, of the okay, flat screen fair, fair TV. Enough. And, and I want a flat screen TV. We have flat screen TVs in our house. I don't want a wind turbine next to my house. <laughs> but, that, the, the demand but, for, but again, the Robert, demand that's not the point. The point okay, is the price, the price of the energy. Oh, come on. The, but it was not the noise from the wind turbine engine. We're talking about the, the history of energy innovation and, and technology development. And if you look back through the history of, you know, how these costs came down the cost curve, because it was not always that easy and that, ex and that cheap to drill for oil and natural gas. Governments had to be involved. These, these industries had to be helped along with industry. Well, but how long do we need to help them? In the Carter administration, we heard that solar energy was going to be the dominant form of energy by the year 2000. What happened? The problem here is not about subsidies. It's not, it's not even about want to or, or belief in global warming. It's basic physics and math. And uh, I sound a little wonky here. It's all about power density. How much power can you harness from a given area or, or, or volume or mass? And that's where solar and wind just fall down. We're talking about one watt per square meter for a wind turbine. For an, even a marginal natural gas well, we're talking about 20 or more watts per square meter. 
This is basic physics. It's not about want to or government policy. The reason these, 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 uh, these energy sources have not been able to get off of subsidies is that they're fighting uphill in terms of physics. I think he's saying the price can't go down because of the physics of it, because of the space, because of the intensity. No, no, I think, uh, seriously, I think that's your argument. And, and, and I, because what does it take to, to th these enormous uh, solar farms take enormous amounts of investment in land? And you're saying that it's going to be a long, long time before it ever pays for itself. So I want to take that back to Bill Ritter because you have experience in this area. Well, again, so here, we've, we've developed wind farms. Uh, we developed them from start to finish in the state of Colorado. Uh, we've got a fellow that's got uh, 112 turbines on his land. He's making about $5,000 per turbine, so it's a half a million dollars that he's earning in income. He's got 68 acres out of production. 68 acres, he's still able to farm. This is He's a wheat farmer, still able to farm all of that. And, and, and time after time after time, not only have we seen the ability to put up a wind farm, but we've seen the economic development possibilities for rural Colorado in an industry that, quite frankly, sort of lives at the margin. Think about the Mojave Desert right now where they're building out solar, they're, and they're doing concentrated solar power with natural gas. And this is why I, I don't accept that we have this either or. It's this false choice. The folks at BrightSource have 2.6 gigawatts of purchase power agreements with Southern California, and so they're going to build out these solar towers, and they're going to put natural gas turbines on there. And if you look at the emissions, back to thinking about it in terms of emissions, if the sun shines like it's supposed to in the desert and the rest of it's natural gas, they get 24-hour power, but they reduce emissions 75% in that, in that 2.6 gigawatts of power going into Southern California. Stephen Hayward. Uh, well, th this raises an interesting point about... Um, how there is no form of energy that doesn't have some kind of environmental trade-off except maybe for that bicycle generator the professor made for Gilligan. <laughs> so environmentalists are, have a whole bevy of lawsuits against those solar power products right now in California because they're built on the habitat of the desert tortoise and other endangered species. And there are separate lawsuits to block the very long transmission lines you have to build to bring them into Southern California. At last count, there are 70 wind projects around the country that are facing environmental lawsuits to stop them for various uh, impacts. Um, you know, we get upset when uh, birds die from a spill in the Gulf of Mexico. Okay, fine. Uh, windmills kill about 10,000 birds a year, and they also kill a lot of bats. Now, you know, bats, as you know, have sonar. Do you know how wind, and don't, they don't run into the blades like birds do. Do you know how they kill the bats? The air pressure changes by the blades, explodes their lungs. So there's no form of energy. And so the point is, is that not only have we heard that fossil fuels are clean, but so-called clean energy sources have their own environmental defects. And I'm, I'm still waiting for a coherent definition from clean for you that doesn't conveniently uh, 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 feed into whatever it is you guys like. Katia Yanisek. Well, first of all, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fan of frogs, but not of bats. So I'm not actually going to take that argument on. Um, what about birds? How do you feel about birds? Uh, again, I'm a frog person, so I'm just going to stick with frogs. I'm a bird person. Um, <laughs> But, but I want to go back to this, you know, definition of clean energy and the cost issue. Because there's something that we have not really been able to um, focus on tonight, and that is the actual reason we're here, to talk about growing the economy and if, this, if clean energy can actually get us out of this economic challenging environment that we're in. So first of all, we talked about our view of what defines clean energy. It's about more efficient, cleaner energy in terms of uh, less emissions, it's about not just talking about wind and solar here, but innovations that go beyond wind and solar. It's, it's about cleaner fossil fuels. It's about innovations we haven't seen yet. It's about energy storage and all the, the um, uh, ancillary investments and innovations that need to go on to, to, to building and creating a new energy economy. 
And then going back to the cost issue, I think we've made some very good points tonight about how the costs are coming down the curve. And we need to be spending our time and money and efforts right now building an innovation economy. Because not only do we need to do that domestically, but we need, a, where, we need an investment strategy for how we're going to be building our export economy. Cassie, where are the jobs in what you're talking about? The jobs are all over the place. They're everywhere from um, investment houses, research, research firms. Um, there are engineering jobs. So I used to work at Bechtel and BP. You know what Bechtel and BP's biggest problem is? It's about getting young people into, that biz, into their, their businesses because people don't want to be uh, drilling engineers. They want to be solar entrepreneurs and, and energy um, engineers. So well, we need to change their mind. Well. <laughs> Stephen Hayward, uh, jobs and clean I, energy. Well, uh, I wrote down something uh, Cassia said earlier about the oil won't help us with our economic predicament. Well, tell that to the people of North Dakota, which currently has a 3.5% unemployment rate because they're having an oil boom. And by the way, it's a state with a budget surplus, uh, which Governor Ritter might find a nice thing to have. Um, I am tempted, by the way, to ask Governor Ritter, maybe I will, uh, how many jobs might you get in Colorado if we opened up the oil shale, 800 billion barrels worth that the Department of Energy says could be produced at about $50 a barrel? That might produce some jobs for something we actually need. Uh, which is more oil supply. Right, right. Days. But the question, and I take your point uh, that, that the oil industry provides jobs, but their point is that the clean energy industry will provide jobs. And why don't you just uh, yeah, take that uh, on? You know, I, I testified on the uh, green exports idea to a congressional committee a few months ago, and I looked up the latest figures. We currently have a $20 billion trade deficit in green energy components. That's, you know, wind and solar and things of that kind because, and that's why uh, uh, the company in Massachusetts moved to China like our computer manufacturers, Robert mentioned, they can make it cheaper than we do. They also have the raw materials that we don't have, by the way. We only have one lithium mine in this country, by the way. We'll talk about lithium batteries later if we want. Uh, uh, and so, uh, you know, I agree to some extent that uh, we will do a lot of innovating here, uh, but the manufacturing is going to be done overseas, folks, for all the traditional reasons. Sorry about that. Well, that's not true about wind. It's not true at all about wind. I mean, we've got Vestas wind turbines. That's 2,600 jobs. You can't make smaller 2,600 jobs in a state like Colorado. It's 5 million people. And a variety of other parts of the wind manufacturing sector. And quite frankly, you have it in Pennsylvania. You have it, I think, in Ohio. You have it in Iowa where there's wind manufacturing. You cannot do those jobs in Canada and that's, or China. And that's part of the reason Vestas located there. But even as it relates to solar, I wonder if there's a debate in China tonight where they're saying, you know, SunTech moved to Arizona and they're making things in Arizona, and so this is a bad thing for us to do in China to, to, to invest in an innovation economy. They're not doing that. And, and quite frankly, there are solar companies that are coming here, manufacturing here from China. There's exports we have to China, and the solar industry itself is a net exporter outside of the United States. It, it, it exports more than it brings in. Well, fair enough. I, I'm, I'm much Bryce. more bullish on solar than I am on wind. And if you look at the data from John Byrne at the University of Delaware, he talks about the learning rate in the solar industry and solar PV and has talked a lot about the price on solar PV coming down. I'm very encouraged by that. I have PV panels on, on the roof of my house. I wish I was able to buy them now instead of eight, nine years ago as I did. But what is happening globally, and then let me talk about what's happening in the U.S., in, in, in Europe, Holland, Spain, Germany, all across the EU, we're seeing huge cuts in these renewable, solar, uh, renewable energy subsidies. In your own home state, Governor, <clears throat> XL uh, is cutting their solar subsidies by half. Why? Because they're too expensive. Now, let me address the issue of cost here, because as I, as I pointed out, the EIA numbers show that renewable energy from solar and wind is significantly more expensive than is conventional uh, uh, electricity. 
43 million Americans are today on food stamps. They've set records. Now, 26 consecutive months, the food stamp rolls in this country have increased. The food stamp rolls today are 40% higher than they were just three or four years ago. Do you think that these people who are living on the edge of hunger care whether their electricity is green or not? I don't think they do. I want to go to the audience for some questions now, and uh, I want to remind you again um, to keep it terse and to try to think of, keep our motion in mind that we want to stay on this topic. uh, And uh, this is a very rich topic, and it's very easy to go off in many different directions. We really want to bring it back to the issue of the effect on the economy of uh, the clean energy industry and developing it. And um, if you raise your hand, uh, there are people in the uh, audience will come to you with microphones and hold it about this far away from your mouth, about a fist distance away, so that it can be picked up on the radio and television broadcast. And before we do that, I just need to do one more little bit for television and radio. This is a debate from Intelligence Squared U.S. Our motion is clean energy can drive America's economic recovery. I'm John Donvan, your moderator. We have four debaters, two teams of two debating this motion, clean energy can drive America's economic recovery. All right, let's go to some questions now. This gentleman in a blue shirt and a blue blazer, right on the edge of the aisle. Hi. Um, yeah, Mr. Hayward, we're, we're in New York City at NY University. As, as you walk around the city, look up at the, at the chimneys and you'll see the black smoke coming out. Well, here at, at NYU, the New York, uh, the, the Institute of Policy Integrity teaches us that 1% of the buildings in New York City burning bunker fuel produce as much pollution as all of the cars and trucks in the city. 259 people die every year because of respiratory diseases, over $1 billion a year in health costs. So what we also know that economic benefits are almost a billion dollars. It seems to me that replacing the the bunker fuel with natural gas, okay, would make it vastly cleaner, would give us lots of jobs, would return almost $2 billion to our economy on a yearly basis. That would help our economic recovery. Stephen Hayward. Um, Now, the odd thing to me is that it's still allowed to be, you know, be burned uh, in, uh, in New York City or any urban area. Uh, the odd thing about New York's air quality, I did a whole book on air pollution a few years ago, conventional air pollution, is um, air pollution levels are, uh, are actually higher in the suburbs in downtown Manhattan for some really odd and quirky reasons. Um, uh, look, I won't quarrel with your figures. Uh, the EPA's got a, a thing out last week about conventional energy. Uh, I'm not sure that it nets out to saying that this is going to be an engine that's going to drive our economy the way housing is done in previous sectors, the way high technology is done. And that's the promise of the resolution tonight. See, this is going to lead us to a boom, right? And I'm just saying that uh, it seems to me it looks like any other sector that will produce only modest results. Sir, what do you think of that answer? If you could rise again so the camera can find you. Do you feel your question was addressed? No, I didn't. Why? (laughs) But, 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 But be specific, why not? I think he just disagreed with you. It, it may be. I, it, this is a question of perceptions. To me, it sounded like you just, just avoided it. If, if, you're, if we put two no, billion dollars... I said I don't, know why, I don't know why it's allowed to have bunker fuel being burned here at all. That just astounds me. It would have been shut down in L.A. 30 years ago. Well, I think there are a lot of people who would say, we don't understand why it's allowed to burn oil uh, just about anywhere, why it's allowed to burn coal anywhere. We have much cleaner alternatives. Converting to those alternatives in many cases will be cheaper, and this New York example is very specific. Robert Bryce, example, is that true? Which is vastly cheaper. Robert Bryce. Natural gas is much cheaper than bunker fuel. Well, fair enough, but did you arrive here by car tonight? No, of course not. I live in New York City. I took a subway. <laughs> we, don't, we don't have cars in New York City. I, I, 
I, I came here in a car and it burned that dirty, nasty oil, and so I'm, I don't know, All right. I'm kind of biased toward it. I, I guess. live in a city where it's Thank plain. You. Let's go over to this side. Uh, <laughs> that one hurt, by the way. It really did. Yeah, you walked you walked into that. I did. I'm really I did. glad I went back to you on that. Uh, there's a gentleman in a leather jacket right by the end of the aisle. And if there are folks in the back who are st- where the lights aren't on, I'm, I want to let you know I can't see you. There are some seats down towards the front if you want to make your way down. I could uh, then see you and call on you. Sorry, sir. On the subject of costs, can both panels uh, give us an outlook for their outlook for the price of oil, let's say going out five, seven, ten years, because that seems to be you know, key to the proposition. If the price of oil spikes and stays there, then there is really no choice but to innovate. If the panel thinks it stays flat or goes down, then we have options. Let's let Cassia yes, yes, take that. Okay. So um, I'll answer in two parts. Number one, uh, the spike issue. I think that we're uh, vulnerable to price spikes in any environment over the next five to seven years. Currently, we're experiencing a price spike. We could see that again in two years. We could see that in five years. We could see that in another month. Um, I think that one other point I would make, and this is actually based on my experience at BP, which is that, you know, we're not going to see oil at 10 or $20 a barrel anymore. And part of that is because the above ground and below ground risks have changed for the, for the oil industry. So, number one, we have to drill, drill further and in, in, and in um, more difficult places to get the oil out of the ground. Clearly, we've seen that in the Gulf of Mexico um, incident. And then, fi- and then secondly, the above ground risks. So most of the oil um, in the future is going to be developed in non-OECD um, countries, and we're already seeing that happen. So what does that mean? It means that the national oil companies have more control over, over their resources, and that is certainly raising the, the, the cost of uh, getting a barrel of oil out of the ground for the IOCs, for the independent oil companies. And is, is the point of your question that as the price of oil goes higher, it makes alternatives more viable economically? It goes high enough. Sorry. If it goes high enough, there's really no choice. Okay, let me put that, that to the other side. Stephen yeah, Hayward. It's, um, uh, this is an interesting question, and I'm almost reluctant to take it on because it's going to help out the other side slightly, perhaps, <laughs> if they have the wit to pick up on it. Um, look, you know, we actually already got off oil once. Uh, in the late 1970s, oil was the number two source of electricity generation in this country, and now it's less than 1%. And how do we do it? Well, coal and nuclear power. Uh, and the interesting thing is, is that uh, in the, you know, in the first oil shocks in the 70s, about half of our energy, total energy consumption was from oil. Today, it's now about 35%. We've gradually electrified more. Uh, and so some of the things we've briefly mentioned tonight, like electric cars, better battery storage, uh, and so forth, uh, that would, ex- would give us some options over time to accelerate a transition away from oil. I'll just say about the first part of the question. Predicting oil prices out five years has made fools out of more people than I've been able to keep count of, and so I don't do it anymore. Okay. Um, well, that, almost, that almost does help the that. other side, your answer. I see why you didn't want to take that on. Um, I'd like to get a female voice, but everybody raising hands that I see. Oh, thank you. Uh, let the mic come on down. Just for the balance. Um, I have a question about other kinds of consumer products and because there's a lot of focus on the automobile industry and like you guys mentioned computer products but what about growth and other kinds of consumer products like that seems like that could be a possibility to grow the economy in relation to but how do you relate that to the energy issue i'm not sure what you're saying oh i'm saying that there's a lot of products that have been advertising themselves as like green products yeah okay 
Thank you. Stephen. Sort of addressed that. I'd recommend reading John Tierney's column in the New York Times today that talks about one of the problems with energy efficiency is that uh, we end up consuming more energy down the road. So uh, one of my favorite examples is jet aircraft engines, 70% more energy efficient than they were 30 years ago. Do we use more jet fuel or less jet fuel today than 30 years ago? Well, more because we fly more because it brought the price down. So everybody's got these things, right? These things have the electricity footprint of a refrigerator, not the device itself. That's absurd, obviously. But when you think about uh, the, the network of uh, cell towers and the electricity that goes into all the servers that we plug into and we download data and make calls, it gives each one of these smartphones, we all have the electricity uh, um, um, footprint of a refrigerator. So we get a lot more uh, energy efficient appliances through mandates and standards and also the marketplace driving it that way. But we find more things to uh, spend energy on, which is why even though we get more efficient year by year, actually better than the European countries in the last 10 years, our energy consumption continues to go up. We keep, we keep buying gadgets like that. I want to take the question to the other side, Bill Ritter, because I think the question was, in a sense, talking about refrigerators and other green energy rated devices and that that's the sort of innovation that I think your side is talking about, that there's that there is growth there and that there are jobs there. If uh, Dan Riker were here and not uh, stuck behind an avalanche in Utah, he would now tell a joke about a fridge to the future because he talks <laughs> about refrigerators as this way to think about uh, energy efficiency and, you know, the energy use of those refrigerators has come down. There's greater volume and 75% less energy use since the early 1970s because of uh, commitment to innovation. Uh, you're right. You know, as it relates to the PDA, they're they're very uh, they go to data centers. Those data centers consume a lot of energy. That makes our point, right? We can't keep the demand for energy growing. You said at one point in time that it's less, but then you just said it's more. And I think you know, you look at IBM. IBM um, understands they use data centers very heavily. And you know what IBM's made a commitment to? Green energy. And they made a commitment to clean energy because they understand that there are costs, maybe apart from just the economic cost of continuing to have this industry that uses so much energy rely on fossil fuels or rely on heavily on coal. So I, IBM in Colorado has the greenest data center, I think maybe in America, and, and they did it specifically because of their energy demand growing and not wanting to be viewed as a, as a polluter. Did he get you? Well, okay. Being in favor of efficiency is like saying you're in favor of air or breathing. I mean, at a certain point, it makes no, it doesn't set you apart at all. The economy is becoming more efficient because, uh, as, as Steve's example with the iPhone, uh, you mentioned flat screen televisions. As flat screen televisions become cheaper, people buy more of them. I don't, I don't know how many. I have seven computers in my house now. I used to just have one. Now, part of, I have teenagers. But the reality is that as we become more efficient, we use more because we have more excess money to then buy more, to do more. So this is not a new area of study. The Jevons Paradox, William Stanley Jevons, 1865, wrote a book called The Coal Question, laid this out very clearly. And so the, the idea, and, and he said it very clearly, he said that, that it, in fact, as you become more efficient, you use more fuel. It is, it is paradoxical. Now, in the U.S. and the developed countries, we may be plateauing in terms of our energy use. But look at the three billion other people who live in the five most populous countries in the world, China, India, Brazil, Pakistan, and Indonesia. They use on a per capita basis one-tenth as much energy as we do. So uh, the fact is, as we become more efficient than we are, all around the world people are becoming more efficient, but they're using more energy because it's our nature to do so. All right. Let's go back to the audience. Um, sir, you've got... Uh I'm looking right at you. If you just stand up. Yeah, 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 yeah. You just went like that. Got an unusual hat on. Didn't, I didn't want to say the hat part, but it's actually it's the team. Worked. 
It's actually the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. This is Michelangelo. Okay. Just thought I'd educate you in that. That's good. That's good. Thank, thank you. All right. Um, Don't make me regret this. <laughs> I think you already did. Well, I guess that alleviates my first question. Uh, my second question would be, this is to all of you, um, where should America see the rest of the world in this? Like, should we see them as enemies? Should we see them as friends, business partners? Should we see their governments as business partners? I mean, where does the rest of the world play into America's economic recovery in terms of clean energy? Cassie Janicek. I think we see them as all of the above. Um, I certainly would say that when, when I think about where I want to be putting my dollars to work, I think about where are my export markets, where are my customers. I mentioned a, a, a statistic earlier tonight that 90% of the, the real energy growth that's going to be happening over the next two decades is in non-OECD countries, developing countries. So we have to be partnering. We have to be developing our customer base. We have to be developing uh, the appropriate trade policies. You know, one of the points that was made earlier tonight was that, you know, Apple was viewed as a, as a, as a great, uh, great company. And uh, Apple has innovated here in the United States. The value is created. The IP is here. Some of the manufacturing is abroad. We're going to have to have some, not all, certainly for, for the large CapEx projects where it makes sense to have local industry develop those products like wind. Um, that needs to be domestic. But for certainly for a lot of other products, we will need to partner with, place, with uh, countries like China. Robert Price. Just, just quickly, in terms of one of the issues in terms – your question is a complicated one. I think we're partners. We're competitors. It depends. But one of the best pieces of news that I've read in the, in the last three months was that in West Bengal in India, ONGC, the Indian energy giant, announced the first shale gas production from a shale gas well in West Bengal. We're seeing now shale gas production potential in Poland, in Australia, in China. The potential for natural gas to set a new paradigm globally for a low-carbon, clean-burning energy source that is cheap, ultra-abundant, uh, uh, and reliable to produce electricity to use for transportation is incredibly good news. What did, what, how, where did it come from? It came from the United States. So are you agreeing with the other side on this point? With regard to innovation in, yes, look, innovation is, innovation is, innovation is innovation, and it is going to spread no matter whether it's in the oil field or in flat screens TVs or whatever. We're agreeing with them if we agree with their very elastic definition of clean. You'll notice this is in the old fossil fuel industry. I think the question is an interesting one. I think there's two parts to it. One is the traditional question about competition for resources, which is you know, a big, naughty question. The second one is closer to what our resolution's about tonight, which is, competition for a technological edge in energy. So we hear that China's going to spend $850 billion the next 10 years on renewable, uh, or, yeah, renewable energy, uh, wind and solar and so forth. Let's just round up and call it an even trillion, you know, a lot more than we're going to spend on it. Partly, by the way, I think they're creating an export industry to us saps, but that's my opinion. But the other part of it is they're going to spend 5 to $10 trillion on old-fashioned coal and natural gas. India, the ratio will look similar because they need so much more energy. Uh, and uh, I think, as Robert says, I, I have a hunch that uh, our export numbers in traditional coal, oil, and natural gas drilling is going to be a lot larger than our exports, even in the best IP we have uh, uh, in, the, you know, batteries and other uh, uh, purely okay. clean technology. Your, your opponent arguing for clean energy, Bill Ritter, would like to come in on this? I just, I, 
I'm going to respond to this a little bit differently. I lived in Zambia for three years as a Catholic missionary. And, and I'm telling you, we could do all sorts of things in innovating products that we could export to very, very poor countries where their ability to use energy differently could help them expand their economies in ways that we don't now think of. In the university that I'm now at, Colorado State University, we developed a two-cycle engine at that university that really can reduce emissions in a tremendous way. If you think about India and the use of the two-cycle engine. So we have actually this other thing that's apart from just the economic driver here, we have this other thing that happens with innovation that can be very positive for some of the poorest places in the world. Okay. Um, Ma'am, in the blue light, powder blue sweater. This evening, no one's really addressed the fact that we have a very aging electric generation infrastructure and that 50% of our generation today approximately is, is produced by coal. And most, many of those plants are very old and aging. And even the younger plants that are maybe 20 years old have been grossly under-invested in. So what I don't hear tonight is not, it's not simply about you know, making money. It's about the risk of producing electricity. It's not simply that the electricity growth is not going to be there. It's that what's going to happen and who's going to produce the investment that needs to be made in our generation infrastructure. All right, I'd but like that, to see but, how that. But man, that, that could go to either either channel. So so can you relate it to our? Um, by, I mean, conventional. I'd like to things. relate it to these folks who have not really but, addressed this issue because but the, what, what it's a huge question? investment opportunity. For it's an investment opportunity that our economy, quite frankly, cannot afford to miss. And I'd like your. You comments. mean the investment in clean energy? I'm saying the investment in our electric generation infrastructure over the next 15 okay, years. Okay, I'm going to pass on the question because I really need you to relate it to the to the motion, well, which is clean the, energy. the issue is that clean energy and investment in things like fuel cell technology, okay, are critical to figuring out how the investment, for example, in our coal plants needs to be made. Okay. And there's a whole area. Now you of did this it. You, you hit it. So, Robert Price. If you look at any of the projections, Deutsche Bank did a report on this in, in December, the Energy Information Administration, the vast majority of new uh, electric generation capacity in the United States will be, over the next 20 years, natural gas fired. And I'm fully in favor of fuel cells. They're still far too expensive to be commercially viable throughout most of the U.S., unless you're in California where you get big subsidies. What are they going to run on? Natural gas. There's also the question about the grid there, which is a, a long subject that yeah. I think we shouldn't actually try. But if you really insist, we could do that. No, I'm not insisting. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd like to make a, a quick point on this because I think it's a very important one. And you're right, we did not really address it tonight. Uh, I work with utilities quite a bit and those that actually have, that are very exposed with their coal fleets. They are very concerned and very interested in figuring out energy, again, you know, the future of energy innovation and how they can strategize the future portfolio over the next 5, 10, 20 years. And, yes, natural gas is definitely going to be part of that solution. But guess what? You know, we've had experiences where we've had a big buildup in natural gas-fired power generation. I experienced it in California when I was working for Bechtel. We were building and investing in natural gas-fired plants one a week almost. And guess what? The net price of natural gas spiked, $10, $13 a, megawatt, uh, a kilowatt hour. So guess what? Um, we need to be thinking a bit broadly about how we're going to be developing our future generation fleet because you're absolutely right. We've got a big challenge ahead of us 
and we need to be thinking very broadly about a big portfolio. Right, but I don't think your side disagrees with what she just said. No, look, we're moving more toward natural gas, not just in the U.S., but globally. Why? Because we're decarbonizing the global economy. The decarbonization trend has been underway for 200 years. It's going to continue for the next 200. It will include solar panels. It will include fuel cells. It will include a lot of things. But we're moving toward cleaner fuels. Why? Because it's what we want as consumers. Okay. So that sounds like that could drive economic recovery in America to do that. It will because natural gas is cheap. No, natural gas is only one part of it, though. That's, that's, we're getting, I mean, and I agree it is a part of it. We actually are promoting the use of natural gas. But to focus it solely on that fossil fuel, it's still a hydrocarbon. Okay, well, let me just ask one question then, uh, Governor. So you're pro-natural gas. I am too. So a lot of our natural gas is produced alongside oil. So you're bringing oil and gas out of the same well bore. So the natural gas is clean, but the oil is dirty. No, I wasn't saying that at all. Um, but I, I do think I didn't I didn't say that oil was dirty. What I said is we have a supply of natural gas. It is cleaner burning. We have the technology and government sponsored the natural gas turbine to get to a place where it became more efficient and increased its efficiency by 30 percent. Interesting that it was a government subsidy that actually had that happen. But but the fact of the matter is that natural gas or oil should not be the only part of our portfolio. If we really look at this from an emissions perspective, you get a 50% reduction in emissions at best from uh, natural gas when you translate it from or transfer it from coal. But with a portfolio that includes all these other things, we can get to this 80% reduction by 2050. We can't get through there, there from a natural gas a, only 80% strategy. reduction well, by 2050? It won't happen. No way. Uh, not a chance. Uh, I can't believe that nobody ever seems to do the math on this, except, by the way, for some researchers at the University of Colorado in the governor's home state. Uh, that 80% reduction takes us back to, as I mentioned earlier, about a billion tons of CO2. The last time we emitted a billion tons of CO2 from fossil fuel sources in this country was over 100 years ago, when we only had 92 million people living in the country. One factoid for you. Uh, if the share of just our households, our houses and apartments and condos that we all live in, if the share of CO2 emissions from the household sector is proportionally the same in 2050 as it is today, their emissions of CO2 will have to be no more than 206 million tons. Today, carbon dioxide emissions from current household natural gas use, 236 million tons. We cannot use more natural gas and make that target, Governor. It, the math does not add up. Quick point, John. To, to hit that 80% reduction by 2050 would take... Uh, U.S. CO2 emissions to current level of emissions in North Korea, Syria, or Cuba. It is not going to happen. It is a pipe dream, and I think it's irresponsible for the government to even be repeating those numbers. And uh, I, the president has said them, and I think it's just... All right. It's Once the word irresponsible comes out, I have to give you a yeah, comeback on that. No, I don't think it's irresponsible at all. This is totally achievable. This is totally achievable How? Through, a variety of, through a variety of strategies that include, uh, include investment in clean energy, that includes renewables, that includes nuclear, that we can look. And we've said clean coal. People are like, what's clean coal? Well, there's all sorts of... Can you give me an emissions of... inventory? What's that? that? Can you give me an emissions inventory for 2050 of specific sources that will add up to no more than a billion tons? Well, no, I'm not able to st sitting right here. That's because I'm no telling one you, can. Uh, what I'm telling you is that it's absolutely achievable, and the reason it's achievable... So, well, I don't if know. If it's absolutely achievable, you ought to be able to tell us how. Our Secretary of Energy is the Nobel laureate, We're at the religious stage of this. Stephen Chu's... Where you, you Just, can I finish one thing? Stephen Chu's a, he's a Nobel laureate, right? He's, a, he's the Secretary of Energy, and what he will tell you is that 
40% of those emission reductions you get from retrofitting the built environment. So it's not about growing the portfolio. It's about finding ways to do energy efficiency. That statistic and you get stated, by the way. It's from, from our building sector, you get 40%. That's not 40% of total emissions. It's only about 10% of total emissions. All right, I'm going to cut this off. And there's a gentleman, bearded gentleman. We were making eye contact before. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, I would really love it if you didn't read your question, because you know what it is. Rather than just the meaning of uh, clean energy, I'd like to ask a question about the meaning of economic recovery. Given that um, very, until just now, nobody had the sort of the wherewithal to bring up climate change, because there's some uh, who will contest the indisputable scientific evidence behind global climate change, I'd like to just ask that if there's the potential for climate change to derail not only our society, but our entire economy in the longer term, in the middle term, in the long term, can we choose to act in any other way but to embrace the precautionary principle and address this problem immediately rather than finding out what happens with clean energy Robert over the Robert Price, you, you write directly to this issue in your new book, so why don't you take that question on? Well, I, I'm agnostic on the question of climate change. If, if, I've read both sides on the CO2 that uh, some say it's catastrophic, others say you know, that, that, that it's not a problem. To me, it's, okay, well, if you believe CO2 is bad, then what? What is the solution? And, and I say it clearly has to be natural gas and nuclear. We, and nuclear in particular because of the power density numbers. Because you get such incredible amounts of energy from a very small amount of, of real estate and relatively small amounts of steel and concrete. And those resource inputs are going to be incredibly important going forward. So, um, you know, I, I, it were I the king, if I were the energy czar, I'd say let's go nuclear in a big way because of the obvious benefits. And I think that the people who are, in my view, if you're anti-carbon dioxide and anti-nuclear, you're pro-blackout. No, let me bring in Cassie. Let me bring in Cassie Yanisek, and then I'll come back to you. Well, can I have one, one, no, no, one, one, one moment. Okay. Cassie, and then I will come back to you. Cassie, so, can you make this one brief, though? Uh, ish, briefish. <laughs> um, well, I, I, the one thing, and I was just going to make one point here, which is, I actually agree with our opponents here. We, you know, I do think nuclear and natural gas is part of the solution. What we haven't spoken about tonight is actually the importance of having efficient, um, appropriate, long-term transparent government policy to get us there. So if we are going to have an economic recovery that's going to be fueled by clean energy, we've got to have the appropriate government policies in place to get us there in the most efficient and the cheapest manner. Okay, Stephen Hayward. Yeah, uh, look, that was the question I was trying to address in my opening remarks, and uh, that uh, it's one thing to be told that it's necessary to do this. It's another thing to be told, as the motion does tonight, that it will make us richer to do so. Here, here's the blunt problem, though. Um, the International Energy Agency a couple of years ago put out a, an assessment, and they caught hell for it because of what it said was the United States and the European countries could disappear off the face of the earth tomorrow, which means their emissions would go to zero. And the growth in emissions of fossil fuel use in the developing world will make up for all of our emissions in about 15 years, which means if you can't solve the problem globally, it doesn't matter what we do. That's why I like to say the problem is so much bigger, whatever your view on, on, the, on the climate question is. You can accept the catastrophic view, and in fact that makes it so much bigger than whatever, all the piddly things we've been talking about with Waxman-Markey or even incremental improvements in efficiency in this country. So that's a sobering answer for you. Question down in the front row. I think Cassia just hit the core of this resolution and the difference between the two sides, perhaps. A government policy, which to me is code for subsidies, which were only obliquely discussed earlier. So can we return to that subject? And if indeed 
Clean energy, by any definition, is technologically achievable, economically achievable. What kind of government policy is necessary slash subsidy, and why can it not be left to the market? So there are three things. Right. I mean, uh, government policy can include a public strategy that helps invest in the innovation. That can be a part of it. And government policy can certainly be helping think about ways that there are financial instruments. And instruments apart from, quite frankly, apart from subsidies that also lead to investment. There's a variety of things municipal governments can do, state governments can do that are financial mechanisms. And so if you have the technology and you have the finance in place, then you look at sort of the other policies that might spur the kind of innovation. And that was our experience in Colorado, that a renewable energy standard absolutely made a significant difference in jobs coming to the state because there was market certainty. Stephen Edward. Um, I don't know where to begin. I mean, Governor, if a 20% renewable standard is a good idea, why not 50%? Well, we went to 30, and we went to 30 well, with the 2% rate cap. Well, because we, weren't, we couldn't get the coalition of people that I believe were necessary for us to do it to make it a wise policy and cost choice. cost was not a consideration 30 is the at second, all? 30, well, we got to 30 within it with a 2% rate cap. And so, you know, that's a pretty good thing to be the second most aggressive renewable energy standard and to do that with people at the table agreeing that it was possible and achievable. But your utilities are agreeing why? Because there, there was a pass-through cost to their rate payers. That's the, that's the interesting thing about all the subsidies that are being discussed now is that it, 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 I, I take the questioner's point. It's, it's, it's directly on point here. It, I, I'm, I'm all for renewables, but why can't they exist on their own? Why, can't they, why do they need my tax dollars? Why do they need everyone else's well, tax dollars rate cap, to make I mean, it happen? Our history of price controls is real successful. Yeah, I mean, I went to a bat for the natural gas industry when they were going to remove the tax credit for intangible drilling costs. You've written about that. And so, so, you know, there's subsidies. There are big subsidies out there. But the fact of the matter is we did this with a 2% rate cap. And, in fact, somebody referenced a story that said we've had this kind of inflation in our energy costs. The Denver Post story that went and looked at this said the biggest increase in cost came from the opening of a new coal plant, not from renewable resources being at 30% okay, renewables well, well, by 2020. Enough. Would you agree then to – Well, that wasn't mentioned in your okay, – it's fair, fair enough, fair, but you didn't mention it. Okay, so would you agree then Fairfield eliminate all subsidies? Fairfield, no favor? The, the oil and gas pre tax preferences amount to $4.4 billion per year. Ethanol alone gets $16 billion. Yeah, and I'm not a fan of ethanol. Okay, fair you, so enough. But would you, but would you support yes, yes. Fairfield, no favor, well, no subsidy? We finally Here's found a fuel so like, that the team no, doesn't think actually, is Actually, I've got a point here that I'd like to make. Cassie, yeah, um, and I, and I've, This is a very important question. I think that, you know, what we haven't seen enough of in this country is enough policies that actually pull technologies into the marketplace. We've seen a lot of push. Well, you need some of the push because you actually need to be, you know, developing the end market so that you have the development of the, the, the turbines and the solar panels to actually sell into a big market. But I absolutely think that the pool of technologies um, is the most important thing that we need to be focusing on. Uh, that could be through a carbon price, a tax, or a, you know, just some sort of price on carbon. I think the clean energy standard, and it's certainly a federal one, is a, certainly a good way to go rather than the patchwork of state policies that – make investors, I think, very, um, you know, concerned because we don't, we'd like to see a big federal approach so that we have an easier time in putting our money to work. Um, Stephen Hayward, yeah, final word for you. Just the price on carbon question. That comes up a lot. I actually did a paper with uh, um, a Tufts economist a few years ago on what a $15 a ton price on carbon would get you. We thought about a 10% reduction in CO2 emissions. Not a lot, but something. But here's the problem with the idea of the price on carbon. Uh, 
You know, Europe has had a big price on carbon for a long time. They've had high fuel taxes for decades, as a, strictly as a revenue measure, and later it became an environmental measure. Uh, you know, so their equivalent price of gas is as high as $8 a gallon uh, in uh, some countries, and their utility rates are much higher than ours. And yet, even with those high prices, you don't see any breakthrough in green, clean energy technologies in Europe. Their numbers are about the same as ours. If the price on carbon incented the market, you'd see a lot more going on in Europe than we do. And that concludes round two of our debate. And here's where we are. We're about to hear brief closing statements from each debater. They will be two minutes each. And this is their last chance to change your minds. Remember, you voted before the debate, and we're going to ask you to vote once again right after their closing statements. And the team that has changed the most of your minds will be declared our winner. So round three, closing statements, each debater in turn. Our motion is clean energy can drive America's economic recovery. Here to summarize his position against the motion, Stephen, Hay Stephen Hayward, F.K. Weyerhaeuser Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and author of the Almanac for Environmental Trends. Oh, thank you, John. Uh, remember that the motion tonight is directed not at whether we think clean energy, however defined, is a good thing or a necessary thing, but whether clean energy can be the sector that will lead this country out of what we're still calling the Great Recession. Uh, now, I wish we could talk more about this. If you mandate or subsidize something, of course you'll create jobs. And if the government spends lots of money on something, you will create jobs. That's why we do defense spending, because it's necessary and when you have a defense plant in your area, of course you create lots of jobs. But of course, if we thought just the government spending money on things uh, was the answer to prosperity, we would never cut the defense budget after a war. It's the reason we build prisons, because it's necessary. Uh, and there's lots more demand for prisons, unfortunately, in this country. But no one thinks that that is the path to prosperity, even though it creates jobs. The question, does it create net new jobs across the economy? Does it add value or value doesn't currently exist? Uh, the uh, light bulbs up here really don't discriminate what kind of electron it comes from. Electrons are all the same. These lights don't care whether it's from a coal-fired power plant or natural gas or a windmill, except when the windmill's not turning. A problem we haven't talked about a lot is the reliability of many forms of clean energy. Uh, I cannot think ever of a, of a sector of the economy uh, that led us out of a recession because the government mandated that we buy the product. Uh, uh, and I could spend a lot of time talking about uh, some of the important uh, things that have been pointed to, like the Internet, jet turbine engines, which were the result of government research, but not mandates that the public buy them. Um, I think for all these reasons, uh, the sign behind us says think twice. I think you should think twice about, uh, about letting sentimental slogans do our thinking for us rather than the hard-headed reality of the energy world. Thank you. Thank you, Stephen Hayward. Cassia, do I pronounce your, your firm Tana? Tana. Okay, I just want to know that correct. Because you were a late entry, I didn't get pronunciations and all this. And thank you again for filling in. It was terrific that you did this. Our motion is clean energy can drive America's economic recovery. And here to summarize for the motion, Kasia Janosek, founding principal of Tana Energy Capital and co-founder of the U.S. Partnership for Renewable Energy Finance. Well, I'd like to summarize tonight by saying, first of all, our opposing side has done us a great benefit tonight. They've said that they're bullish on solar, that natural gas is clean, that Apple is a great example of a, of a, of a company that has innovated here but manufactures their products abroad in China. And actually all of those points actually help us because essentially they're saying that they agree with us, that the clean energy economy will help to grow, um, to grow our economy and get us 
into a, in a, into a state of recovery. I'd also like to bring it back to why I'm here tonight. I'm not an environmentalist. I don't like bats and birds. <laughs> I like making money. And I wouldn't be here talking about the importance of clean energy if I didn't think that there was an opportunity for investors and consumers to actually improve our, our, our state by either making money or reducing our costs of consuming energy. We've talked about subsidies. We've talked about how subsidies in the United States help dirty and clean energy. We've talked in, uh, about the, and we've been in agreement that we're seeing costs come down the cost curve for, for many clean energy technologies, whether it be electric uh, batteries, um, electric car, uh, uh, batteries for electric vehicles, or solar energy. And we've also agreed here that, you know, oil price spikes aren't great. And therefore, we need to be expanding our energy uh, options into a variety of different fuels, clean and dirty, and make them cleaner. So I would just finalize here my points by saying I think that we need to be focusing on what's actually going to be getting us into this next phase of growing our economy. And we're already doing that. We're already seeing energy technology move to a place where we saw IT and biotech 10, 20, 30 years ago. And it's about focusing on the technology, focusing on the smart policies that actually promote energy innovation and promote um, you know, pooling technologies and having them compete with one another. And finally, it's about po uh, policies that actually bring finance into, the, into, uh, into this industry. And Thank actually you. Jesse Yanisek, your time's up. Thank you. Thank you. Our motion is clean energy can drive America's economic recovery. And here to summarize his position against the motion, Robert Bryce, author of Power Hungry, The Myths of Green Energy and the Real Fuels of the Future. Recall the motion. Clean energy can drive America's economic recovery. The key word there is drive, that this is going to be the catalyst for the economic recovery. Energy transitions, like it or not, happen over decades or even centuries, not years. And that economic recovery, the implied timeline here, is maybe a half decade. Steve and I have repeatedly shown that this clean energy term is so vague as to be meaningless. That's one reason why you should vote against this motion. In 1974, Richard Nixon promised that we would be energy independent in six years. Today, we import a lot of foreign oil. We've been an importer of foreign oil since 1908, a net crude oil importer since 1908. Now we hear President Obama saying 80% of our electricity will be clean energy by the year 2035. We didn't get energy independence, and we won't meet this goal of 80% of our electricity from clean energy by 2035 either because it is such a nebulous idea. If everything is clean energy, then nothing is. Look at the latest numbers from the EIA. Today we produce about 50% of our electricity from coal. Their latest projections are that by 2035, coal will still be providing about 40% of our electricity. Why? Because of cost. The latest EIA projections also show that by 2035, coal, oil, and natural gas will be providing 78% of our primary energy. That's only slightly down from 83% today. Clean energy won't fuel America's economic recovery because we don't know exactly what it means. Unfortunately, Steve and I can't talk about power density and, and cost and scale in ways that will drive these points home. It takes physics. It takes math. The, this issue that we're hearing, this beating of the drum for clean energy, unfortunately, is just a further cheapening of our political discussion in this country. Rather than having real discussions about energy and energy policy, we're stuck with yet another slogan, and that will not help our economic recovery at all. Thank you, Robert Price.
motion, clean energy can drive America's economic recovery. And here to summarize his position for the motion, Bill Ritter, director of the Center for the New Energy Economy at Colorado State University and former governor of Colorado. Thank you. Thank you very much for your time and your attention tonight. Uh, this is uh, a uh, debate that's far more important than any kind of political slogan or any kind of politicking. This is a debate that I think has everything to do with the economic future of this state or this country and quite frankly the future for our kids and our grandkids. And people who think that Americans don't care what kind of a power source delivers electricity through a light bulb are wrong about that. Everything that I've seen in terms of public opinion polling says that Americans absolutely do care that we make investments in clean energy. Why do they care about it? They care about it because they believe that in this place, America, that we are inventors, that we are creators. You can look at costs and say costs are this and that's why coal will be going forward 40 percent of our energy. That's a static view of the world. That doesn't take into account the tremendous cost curve reductions that we've seen in a variety of places that are absolutely non-carbon sources of energy, solar, wind, and things of that nature. And, and quite frankly, um, Americans believe in this power of innovation and creation, and so they say, yeah, we can do it. We can do it with the right set of policies. And, and we're not here defending every subsidy and saying it has to happen this way in a subsidized way. What we're saying is if you put the right set of policies in place that support taxing, uh, sorry, financing, uh, technology, and those things that help bring technologies forward and, and, and move them forward, then you get to a place where actually you can, you can see uh, a vision for a clean energy economy that actually can be part of this economic recovery. States across the country have seen job growth because they committed investments and innovation. They committed policy to this, and they've seen job growth in this sector and no other sector. And, and that's just one laboratory. If we did it at the federal level and we did it as a nation, we would see economic recovery in this sector, even in the place where we're slow to recover in a variety of other sectors because it's a global market Thank you, Bill and Ritter. global demand. Thank, Thank you. you. And that concludes our closing statements. And now it's time to learn which side has argued best. We're asking you again to go to the keypads at your seat that will register your vote. Our motion is clean energy can drive America's economic recovery. If you agree with the motion, having heard the arguments, press number one. If you disagree, press number two. If you are or became undecided, push number three. And we will have the results in just a minute. And also in San Francisco and in Washington, D.C., uh, our observers there are also registering their vote. And we're going to report both results tonight. So um, before we get to the results, uh, which will only take about a minute, um, a few things I want to take care of. First of all, um, I would really like to have already thanked you personally, Cassie, but I'd like to thank all four of our panelists for coming here with uh, really, really bringing their game to this. Thank you. Thank you, all of you. And um, tonight was one of those nights when the questions in the audience, uh, from the audience members were actually terrific and on point, no matter what kind of hat you're wearing. I want to thank all of the people who got up and asked questions because it's not that easy to do. And a special thank you goes out to the American Clean Skies Foundation for helping to underwrite this season of debates. And again, thank you, Greg Stapleton. And, and what this season is about is, is a theme that we call America's House Divided. And our next debate will be Tuesday, April 5th. The motion then 
it's time to clip America's global wings. Arguing for the motion, we have Peter Galbraith, the UN's Deputy Special Representative for Afghanistan in 2009, the first U.S. Ambassador to Croatia as well, where he was actively involved in the Bosnia and Croatia peace process. Joining him as his teammate is Lawrence Korb, an Assistant Secretary of Defense under Ronald Reagan. Korb was once in charge of administering 70% of the defense budget. He is currently a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress. Arguing against the motion are Elliot Abrams, a fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations who held positions in the Reagan administration and the George W. Bush administration, where he was Deputy National Security Advisor in charge of Middle Eastern Affairs. His partner will be Elliot Cohen. We have a double Elliot coming up, and that's very rare. He's a professor at this. I was once on a shoot uh, for ABC News in Romania, and I was joined by three ABC colleagues. All came from different countries. We all converged there, and all three of them were named Bruno. <laughs> now, that is rare. Elliot Cohen is professor of the School of Advanced International Studies at Johns Hopkins, who, despite taking the Bush administration to task over its handling of the Iraq War, served as counselor at the Department of State. Tickets are available for those debates, for that debate and others following through our website and at the Skirball box office. And you can also follow Intelligence Squared U.S. on Twitter and make sure to become a fan on Facebook to receive a discount on upcoming debates. And actually, this entire debate was um, streamed live on Facebook tonight, this first time that we've done that. Also, all of our debates, as we've said before, can be heard on NPR stations across the country. And you can watch the debates on the Bloomberg Television Network starting next Monday at 9 p.m. Visit Bloomberg.com to find your local channel. So I'm just waiting for the results to come. They're probably taking a little bit longer because of the D.C. and, um, uh, and San Francisco votes. And since I mentioned Charles Ferguson earlier, Oscar winner, I, I don't know if you're actually here because I never saw you. Are you here, Charles? Can you just shout? Yes? You are. I just want to, again, uh, congratulations to you. And, and an interesting little fact, my son, who's a 14-year-old uh, eighth grader, got extra credit for going to see your movie and, and showing up at school with the ticket stuff. So as, a, as his father, I'm glad that I could contribute a little bit to, to your... To your your income on that, but congratulations. <laughs> now, um, Dana, do we have word from? Uh, well, why don't we why don't why don't we announce the hall vote, and then afterwards I can announce the D.C. and San Francisco vote. That's going to embarrass her a great deal. All right, we'll talk to your neighbor. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know, actually. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, here it comes. Here comes the vote. <laughs> All right, so, so um, we didn't actually hear back from San Francisco. I'm not sure what's happening out there. <clears throat> so here are the, um, I just want to do the math here. Oh, it's pretty close in uh, D.C. Um, all right, so in Washington, here are the results. Before the debate, 52% were for the motion. 
14% were against and 34% were undecided. After the debate, 46% are for the motion, 23% are against, and 31% undecided. As I see it, the against side won in Washington by moving the number 9% versus the four sides moving at 8%. So in Washington, uh, congratulations to them. All right. Here is the final result then from all of you in the hall who have voted twice now on the debate on, on the topic and the motion and the arguments that you have heard. Before the debate, 46% were for the motion, 21% against, and 33% undecided. After the debate, 43% are for, that's down 3%, 47% are against, that's up 26%, and 10% remain undecided. The team arguing against the motion, Clean Energy Can Drive America's Economic Recovery, has carried the debate. Our congratulations to them, and thank you for me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared U.S.